By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Welcome to another episode of Moody's Talks Muniland, the podcast about credit dynamics in U.S. public finance. I'm your host, Nick Samuels from Moody's U.S. public finance team in New York. A decade ago, Kevin Orr put his life as a successful corporate lawyer on hold to take the politically charged job as emergency manager of the city of Detroit, a city in severe fiscal distress. 40% of its streetlights were out, public safety response times were dangerously slow, and block after block of the city was blighted. Ultimately, he led the city into a milestone bankruptcy. The bankruptcy filing in the summer of 2013 set off a wild 16 months before a judge approved the city's plan to shed billions of dollars in debt. There were many twists and turns. The judge ruled that pensions, what so many city employees had worked years for, could be cut. The city essentially sued itself to repudiate pension debt it had issued. Detroit even held out the prospect that it would have to sell the holdings of its renowned art museum to raise cash to pay creditors. In a moment, we'll examine those extraordinary events and the bankruptcy's repercussions with Kevin Orr. Then, later, Moody's analysts Naomi Richman and David Strungis will join us to offer their perspectives on the bankruptcy's significance, including how it's affected our credit analysis. And before we welcome Kevin, I note his views are his own and do not reflect those of his law firm, Jones Day, or Moody's Investors Service. Kevin Orr, welcome to Muniland. Hello, Nick. Thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate it. So we're a decade after the bankruptcy filing, and we recently upgraded the city. It's still speculative grade, but just a notch below investment grade. So Detroit has come a long way from the time when it touched the bottom of our rating scale, but it still faces a range of challenges. So in that context, did the bankruptcy succeed? Yeah, it did. It, it did, Nick. In, in fact, in preparation for this call, I went and looked at the February 23 uh, City of Detroit economic output that was prepared by Michigan State, Wayne State, and my alma mater, the University of Michigan. And it's really quite, and this is post-pandemic, and it's really quite um, impressive in terms of the metrics that are involved. You, if you look at that report, you'll see a number of cliffs and drop-offs and graphs, but it's recovered, for instance, to pre-pandemic unemployment rates. The trajectory in terms of Detroit payroll jobs is still upward. The unemployment rate is still down. The quarterly averages um, are going in the right direction. I mean, we would not have had these opportunities in the city except for the restructuring that we did now begun almost 10 years ago. All right. So you've been involved in plenty of corporate bankruptcies, including Chrysler's during the Great Recession. And one thing that our corporate finance colleagues tell us is that the Chapter 11 corporate bankruptcy process is orderly and predictable. But municipal bankruptcies are rare, and they were rare when you worked on Detroit. And maybe you were making up some of the rules as you went along 10 years ago. Can you compare the two and how much more difficult did those differences make it in Detroit as you formulated your approach? People usually ask me that, and I I answer it this way. I say, look, there are two parts that differ from a corporate bankruptcy. A corporate bankruptcy, people have fiduciary duties, 
They're usually acting in Pareto maximizing rational decisions. They're trying to maximize rate of returns and outputs and feasibility. So those, those are the balance sheet issues when you're dealing with a corporate restructure. You're going to restructure. Are we going to dissolve? Are we going to sell? And all those are, are normative concepts that we deal with every day. In a municipal bankruptcy, you have all of those issues, the balance sheet issues, the general fund budget, the enterprise funds, your ratings, uh, because let's face it, municipal debt is the lifeblood of a municipality. But you also have the human dimension, the ad hominem issues. How do you make it safe? How do you preserve housing values, people's probably largest single asset purchase in their life? How do you make it so that people want to move back into the city? Because cities have lives. They, they ebb and they flow. So we brought private sector principles, which we were very familiar with, meaning my entire team, the folks at Ernst & Young, King Buckfire over at Miller Buckfire, uh, my law firm, Jones Day, that was there, uh, Conway McKenzie, uh, that whole team brought very familiar with all those concepts. We brought those concepts, but my job was really a factor as essentially a Uber receiver to try to overlay on those balance sheet principles, the human dimension and the sustainability, because you can't liquidate a city. Unlike a business, you can shut it down. You can't shut down a city. It's not possible either doctrinally or practically. So we had to develop a plan that put in place some of the issues that would preserve the city. And by the way, um, not only was it Chapter 11, but I also had a state act, Public Act 436, uh, which, which was enacted pursuant to the state constitution, where the governor, Governor Snyder, was the chief executive order officer of the state, appointed me as his appointee. So I had two doctrinal underpinnings of both Chapter 11, the canon of Chapter 11, but I was sort of creating new law under Public Act 46. Uh, uh, 436, although there have been many other emergency managers, none on this uh, sort of level and and scope. Okay, so to those points, one thing that doesn't come up in corporate bankruptcy is the concept of service insolvency. Can a government provide basic services? And that certainly was a factor in Detroit. So did that provide leverage in negotiations? Because the, the judge agreed with that concept, right? Yeah, we that, that was our concept to really sort of encapsulate and give some nomenclature to what is, when you bring a private actor concept to a municipal bankruptcy, what is the throughput? What is the output of this enterprise? You know, we're in Chrysler, it's cars, right? And labor. Um, if you're doing a retail, it's the retail product. Toys are us, it's toys. Um, your your middleman you're trying to sell. Well, the the throughput, the output for a municipality is services, and the concept that service delivery insolvency, in other words, the municipality was not putting out services at a level of any medium. We're not talking about Naplu Ultra, Beverly Hills, and Palm Beach. We're talking about the average level of services that citizens in America should expect. And not to put too fine a point on it, the general fund budget was two thirds public safety police, fire, EMT. And our response times were over 45 minutes. There was an 80% mortality rate um, in the city for a cardiac arrest. If you don't get there in the first 45, people are going to die. Um, a significant percentage, over 20% um, of our housing stock was either uh, abandoned, blighted, or subject to arson. So under any measure, we were service delivery insolvency. And when you're thinking about the phasing of a restructuring, the introduction, 
the plan design development and, and building support, and then the exit strategy, your, your pole star, your true north is, how do I get this enterprise to push out the services that the citizens need? And, and it's not so much leverage just as common sense. Look, we, we can't pay our bonds and we can't collect our taxes and we can't operate the city. And we have 47 different collective bargaining agreements with different city worker uh, collective bargaining units. We can't pay them unless we're pushing out those services. So that, that was sort of the focus and the target for us is raising those service delivery numbers to acceptable levels for a U.S. municipality. Detroit was laden with pension liabilities, retiree health care obligations, bonded debt. And so you needed to try to convince creditors to take a big haircut, including city government retirees, to try to avoid a bankruptcy filing. What was the tipping point in those negotiations that led you to actually pursue bankruptcy? You know, it actually is when we started in March, we had a, a meeting for creditors and interested parties, and we pushed out a deck. And we were fully forthcoming. We thought transparency would help. And, you know, I went back and looked at the uh, looked at that process, and there are two parts to a municipality. There's eligibility, and then there's plan design, unlike a Chapter 11, where once you file, you get a discharge injunction, and, and there's no real question uh, other than whether or not you're insolvent. In Detroit, you actually have an eligibility pre-trial, and you have to pass that trial. Well, there, I you know sat for somewhere in the neighborhood of 24 depositions, primarily for retirees, pension funds, and union groups, but not one bank, bondholder, swap counterparty, insurer, or financial party objected to eligibility. And frankly, most of the, the public sector unions did not either. Everybody, so everybody agreed we were eligible. Um, that was that was a big step in the right direction. The real issue was we only had so much money in a certain pot. How were we going to distribute it? And to your point, you know, people were looking at pensions and bonded debt, the funded debt versus the pension side. But the real issue, and this is for all municipalities, real thing that was driving the insolvency of the city was healthcare spend. Um, healthcare spend was slated to be almost two-thirds of the general fund billion-dollar budget by the year 2024. And that's unlike pensions, where you have some assets that you can count towards the actuarial liability that you have the pension holders, and unlike bondholders, that you have some ability to pay interest um, and pay down, you know, par, pay down the principal. The, that healthcare spend came out of current dollars. There were no dollars saved for healthcare. So that, more than anything, you know, it's like looking at legacy costs of a manufacturer. Those legacy costs are a huge drag on performance and survivability, and we really had to address those. All right. Speaking of pensions, the judge ultimately ruled that pensioners, even though their benefits were contractually protected under Michigan law, could be impaired in bankruptcy. Did that surprise you? No, not at all. Um, and I'll tell you a little uh, coda um, on that point. You know, under the bankruptcy code, you can assume and assign or reject, abrogate um, executory contracts. And the 1973 Michigan State Constitution specifically said that pension benefits are contractual executory contract benefits that under state law um, you can't impact. But under the federal constitution, because bankruptcy is federal, and therefore, we have the supremacy cause of the U.S. Constitution. 
the bankruptcy, uniform bankruptcies, Article One of the Constitution trumped the state law. And in fact, Judge Rose, the case, the reason I felt so strongly about that is when I was in federal government at the Resolution Trust Corporation, I handled a case called Selma Diamond. It was about abrogating New York state rent control on properties that we had during the savings and loan crisis. And in that case, the Second Circuit held that likewise, federal law, FIREA, Financial Institutions Reform Recovery Enforcement Act of 1989, trumped the, the, the holy grail of New York rent control, which was the rent control statutes that had been in place since 1946. Judge Rhodes cited that case, which was my case from over a decade prior when I was in federal government, as the basis to support the imposition of federal preemption against state law. And therefore, we could abrogate and revise those pension contracts. The reality is we settled most of this through mediation, but by him doing that and saying to the parties, federal law controls here at a federal court, that accelerated the expectations of the parties of what they needed to do to resolve the pension underfunding. And they, in fact, voted for our plan um, in close to 70%. You have to have a majority on the vote. They they had a supermajority approve the plan. At one point, as you worked through the bankruptcy, Detroit essentially sued itself. The city had issued more than a billion dollars of pension obligation, certificates of partition called COPS, but you argued that the issuance was illegal and sought to repudiate that debt. Why? Well, the, the COPS is a nomenclature, and the reason they called them certificates of participation because the city was already at its borrowing limit legally, so they gave it another nomenclature, COPS, certificates of participation. Our view was it was void ab initio, and under the doc, I won't get too much caught up in the jargon and the doctrine of municipal finance law, but void ab initio basically says, you never should have done this. They're void. We don't know it. And we wanted to say to everyone, look, this was done during a prior time administration. And I understand they're basically pension bonds. They were called certificates of participation, but they were pension bonds, but they were illegal. And my job as a fiduciary and a receiver of the institution wasn't to blink and nod at illegality, and there was there was a fair amount of it, um, technically, but it was to report it, point it out, and challenge it. And I, it was pretty straightforward to me. Look, and you'll look at the rubric for those secured bondholders. We paid them 100 cents on the dollar. That that's the priority scheme in our country. For those that are unsecured, you're an unsecured creditor, just like Mastercard is unsecured, but your home lender is a secured party. They have a different, they've made a different bargain and there's a different coupon rate expressed in that bargain. So likewise with the cops, I can't say to the general fund bondholders, you know, you may need to take a haircut, but I'm going to blink at this certificate of participation, which we all know was not only improvident and ill-advised, but illegal. I have to treat them the same way because the bankruptcy code requires there to be fairness. Fair and equitable is the standard. They're in the same class as unsecured parties. In fact, I would argue that they might be a little less because the bondholders bought bonds and they have retirees too that are invested in, in these instruments, right? The cops were sold when people knew it was illegal and that's why they came up with a different name. So I had to challenge it. 
Something else that made Detroit's bankruptcy so unique is that the city owned the Detroit Institute of Arts and a highly valuable collection of artworks. And creditors argued that the city should sell it. And you felt that was something that the city had to consider. And ultimately, it drove something called the grand bargain, in which the art was saved, the museum became a not-for-profit, and pensioners took a smaller haircut than had been proposed. Without that deal, what do you think would have happened? Oh, without that deal, we would have had to sell some of it. You know, the same concept of fair and equitable means that I, on two sides of the balance sheet, you have debits, you have credits. We have 14 different categories of asset classes, but only two, the water department and the art museum, really had any positive value. Everything else either had negative value or was flat. Um, 60,000 pieces of art in the museum. You know, 30 Rock has a Diego uh, Rivera mural. We've got four. And we were getting, Detroit has four. I keep saying we, the, the Royal We. Detroit has four at the Art Museum. Um, we were getting offers, literally, literally, from Saudi sheikhs and Russian oligarchs to buy, they were going to cut the murals off of the wall and export them. We have Bruegels, we have Renoirs, we have, I mean, name it. It is, it is a art museum of record with tremendous amounts of art. I'm not sure the museum even knows all the art it has at a time in the city in the Beaux-Arts age was very wealthy. They would buy art, bring it back and the city owned it outright. So I had to get some value for it because as a receiver here again, you can't ignore this jewel standing over here and asking pensioners and you're funded that take haircuts without providing some value, quid pro quo, for that art. The grand bargain, therefore, gave me the opportunity to say, I have, in the condition of the funders of the grand bargain, Ford Foundation, uh, Greater Southeast Foundation, Kresge, Kellogg, a whole bunch of people, including the, the art patrons of the art, um, gave me almost a billion dollars, along with the government uh, that came in with almost $200 million, to be able to say in terms of the fair and equitable rubric, I've gotten value for this asset class. I can preserve it, but in order to preserve it, I'm going to put it into an irrevocable trust for all time. So now it's no longer uh, subject to deaccession, which is a fancy word for yard sale, apparently, to our community. Um, no longer subject to deaccession, but also for the preservation of the people, not just of Detroit, but of uh, the entire region. You know, school kids go there, art patrons go there. Um, it's really quite a significant asset for the city, and we wanted to preserve it. So the grand bargain gave us the springboard to do that. Assume that there's some other financially troubled city, and the CFO of that city obviously listens to the Muniland podcast, hears this episode and says, I got to call Kevin Orr. What would your advice be? How would you decide to tell that CFO to file for bankruptcy or not? Because like you've said... The question of whether to file for a municipality might be a lot harder. It's much harder. It's, 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 well, my, there are three things, three gating issues I think you have to look at, which is, number one, um, do you have the authority to file for bankruptcy? You know, municipal bankruptcies, unlike private sector, have to be authorized by the chief governing body, usually the, the state legislature or the governor under state constitution. Number one, can you even do it? Uh, that's that's the first thing. Number two, you put it in the vernacular, who's going to own this? They, at some point, if you go down that road, there has to be an actor that is going to be responsible for coordinating 
with both the legislative side, the, the state house and the state Senate, and also the executive side, the treasurer, the governor, the comptroller, all of whom at some point are going to, one, have to pay the operating costs of bankruptcy, you know, attorneys, uh, accountants, investment bankers. But number two, they're probably going to have to throw something in the pot to make it close out. So who, who's going to own it? And then the third thing I would, I would ask them is, are you committed in a sense of almost a Viking? Are you willing to burn your boat and go over the next ridge? Because when you go down this road, you have a, my, my term as emergency manager was 18 months. It was extended for another uh, three months to get it done. But you have a limited time frame in the saddle, just real politic, in the saddle of election years to show success because it's going to be a lot of skepticism by the body politic. Um, your adversaries are going to come after you. The, the Let's just be honest, the capital markets aren't going to be happy with you um, in dealing with the labor uh, community is not going to be happy with you. My friends at the National Socialist Network weren't particularly happy, um, that, that sort of crowd. And you've got to be able to show some success to get through the saddle of that issue. One of the things we did early on to try to emphasize that point is that we went back to the governor. They had a deal to for the state to rent Belle Isle and clean it up as a park of record, but also for the community. It was a sundown town. There was a time when African-Americans in the city couldn't go to Belle Isle. So I wanted to erase some of that rust and corrosion but also clean it up, clean up the fountain. People didn't know there was a nine course golf course on the north end of the island because it was overgrown. Um, the casino and the state did all of that on their dime. It cost us almost $6 million a year you know, to try to operate it, but there was another $10 million a year capital costs that we couldn't afford. So by renting it to the state, that $10 million over the next decades can literally be hundreds of millions of dollars of unfunded liability that the state has taken up. And I did that in March so that by May and June, they would see a difference in the city and see some success. So you, you grab the low-hanging fruit, you, you ask yourself what you can do success, but those three questions are questions that any party has to really ask themselves. And be frank with you, they're hard questions to answer. Okay, Kevin Orr, thank you so much for joining us on Muniland. Nick, thank you so much for having me, and I hope all goes well. Joining us now to offer some thoughts on Kevin's comments, Detroit's current credit quality, and how the Detroit case affects our credit analysis are Naomi Richmond, Senior Vice President in the Public Finance Group, and David Strungis, the analyst who covers Detroit. Naomi and David, Kevin's comments were fascinating, but Bondholders might obviously view the bankruptcy differently than Kevin does. So, Naomi, what stood out to you the most? I would say three things stood out. First, Kevin talked quite a bit about the concept of service insolvency, whether the police could respond on time, whether streetlights were working and so forth. And I think that's a different way of looking at municipal bond credit risk than we had traditionally considered. So beyond looking at financial statements and economic data and debt repayment terms, you know, really looking more broadly at whether the city was fulfilling its mission. The second that he also touched on is the concept that investors in the city's bonds 
were really in direct competition with the city's retirees who were owed both pensions and retiree health care. I think that was something different than what we really had thought before. And then last, I would say just the difficulty uh, for us as analysts to predict ahead of time the relative creditworthiness of the city's various kinds of debt obligations. And in municipal finance, bankruptcies are very rare. It's different than corporate finance, which is where Kevin spends most of his time, not only in some of the political issues he talked about, but that when a corporation files for bankruptcy, it's very well understood how their different kinds of debt are going to perform, who's going to get what, whereas in in municipal bankruptcy, there's a, a lot of uncertainty about that. Okay. And David, what are your thoughts? Thanks, Nick. From the perspective of the city's credit, it certainly does appear that the bankruptcy gave the city an opportunity to reset, albeit at a heavy cost to bondholders. Recall again that in the bankruptcy, the city not only cut its OPEB obligations and trimmed pensions, but geo bondholders uh, saw losses and the cops, which we heard Kevin talk about the city's attempts to invalidate the cops, those were effectively wiped out. They saw very heavy losses. But since exiting bankruptcy, the city really has made consistent incremental improvement and in many ways has restored and improved the key functions of the city. Uh, Since exiting bankruptcy, they've grown revenues, their reserves and liquidity have remained strong, their debt is much much more manageable, and perhaps more importantly, the city can now afford its pension contributions. And recall that's been a question Uh, for some time since exiting bankruptcy, the city has been on pension holiday and those pension contributions come back next year. Uh, And one factor in our our upgrade to one notch below investment grade was that those contributions now look more affordable. And then in addition to all of that, there's just more economic development happening in the city. So there's there's a lot of strong momentum post-bankruptcy. This is partly, of course, a, a story of strong management but it does seem like the bankruptcy itself has marked a turning point for the city. Okay, Naomi, as you mentioned, and as Kevin mentioned, municipal bankruptcy is rare. So in our role as credit analysts, what have we learned from the case of Detroit and how has it changed how we do what we do? Nick, one of the main changes in how we do what we do based on Detroit, as well as the very small number of other municipal bankruptcies, is that we now look at pensions and retiree health care as part of overall debt, right alongside bonds, bonds and notes. And when we calculate how indebted or leveraged a city is, we incorporate all of those liabilities into our calculation. And I think that's based largely on realizing that those other obligations have at least as strong, and in case of pensions, sometimes a stronger claim on scarce resources than bonds do. So I think that was definitely a, a lesson that we learned. We also learned that when we look at a city, it's very important to look at the entire balance sheet of the city, including all of its funds, where we used to typically look at a more select group of what we called governmental funds. And in order to see the big picture, you need to look at the full organization. And lastly, in terms of how we rate different bonds relative to one another, we used to sometimes allow, for example, a water revenue bond to be rated far higher 
than a city's general obligation if the city was undergoing stress. But now across the board, we rarely rate the water sewer much higher than the city and, and virtually always within two notches of the general obligation. All right, let me ask you both the same question. What surprised you the most about the bankruptcy or the lessons from the bankruptcy? Naomi, you go first. When we looked at some of the press accounts and the statements coming from Kevin and others, Detroit's bankruptcy was often framed in terms of Wall Street, meaning the investors who bought the city's bonds, versus Main Street, meaning the city's retired employees who were relying on city pensions and health care. And we don't typically think of municipal bondholders as being Wall Street, but that is clearly how they were perceived. And an example of this, we've talked a bit about the certificates of participation that the city issued, uh, also called COPS. And Kevin mentioned that he the COPS were illegally issued, and so that's why the city repudiated them and that that was the right thing to do. And they were virtually wiped out. Investors got pennies on the dollar. And yet, if you take a step back, the proceeds of those COPS were used to help fund the city's pensions. But when they were deemed illegally issued, there was no concept of taking the money that went into the pension and giving it back to the bondholders. In other words, unwinding the whole deal. So when you when you think of fairness, I, th I think that to me raises some questions. OK, David, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'll, I'll just add on top of that. I'm, we talked about that um, the bankruptcy marked a turning point for the city. And I think to the extent that the bankruptcy seems like a success, at least from the city's perspective, uh, it has the potential to make bankruptcy a more attractive option for distressed governments, uh, at least at the margin. And I think, you know, could be something to keep our eye on in the future. Okay. David and Naomi, thank you so much for joining us. That's all for now from Muniland. I'm Nick Samuels. Join us the second Thursday of every month. We'll talk with you then. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts. <laughs>